Welcome to River of Life, and thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy this teaching, we want to encourage you to share it with a family member or friend. Also, visit River of Life this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. For service times and directions, visit rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, good evening, everybody. Thank you. It is a good evening. All right, if you got your Bible, let's go ahead and find your seat. If you'd like to follow along, uh, tonight we are going to finish up in Romans chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 25, and we'll actually make our way all the way to chapter 10 and verse 4. So the last, uh, I don't know, six, seven, eight verses, I can't remember, of, of chapter 9 and the first four verses of chapter 10. The title of our lesson tonight is The Stumbling Stone. Now, very quickly, let's look at last week's verses so we can kind of position ourselves uh, where we are. Last week in verses 22 to 24, uh, Paul said this, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So our lesson last night was called Vessels of Mercy. And he's not talking about countries. He's not talking about nations. He's talking about us. He's talking about people, those whom he has called. Now, Paul began this chapter, as I've uh, reiterated multiple times, talking about how God has always been choosing a remnant uh, of, of, of Israel, right? A remnant of the Jewish people. Now, here in, uh, at the end of chapter 9... He now tells us that this chosen remnant not only includes Jews, but it also includes Gentiles, which is, for those of you that are not familiar with that term, a Gentile just means anybody that's not a Jew, which I'm assuming is, is most of us in here. Now, the next four verses is basically Old Testament support for the statement that he just made, okay? First, in verses 25 and 26, he reaches back into the book of Hosea. And he picks out two verses to show that the Gentiles are part of this chosen remnant. Let's read verses 25 and 26. <clears throat> it says, as, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So this is uh, his validation from the Old Testament that this chosen remnant that God is choosing will include uh, Gentiles. Then in verses 27 to 29, he switches back over to the Jewish people to show once again that not all Israel uh, are chosen. Not all Israel uh, belong to Israel, only the ones that God chooses. Um, verses 27 to 29. He says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Now, we are 
at the very end of Romans 9. And in Romans 9, if, if nothing else, Paul has given us just this absolutely majestic picture of, of God. And in that chapter, the question comes up, why are some chosen as vessels of mercy and others are not? And the chapter, Paul answers this in multiple ways, and he basically says it's because of the sovereignty of God. The bellwether verse in this chapter, if you will, is Romans 9.16. Why are some chosen as vessels of mercy? Paul says it depends not on human will, nor on human effort or exertion, but only on God who has mercy. Now, that is the answer he's been giving us week after week after week. But tonight, he gives us another reason. Okay, let's look at verses 30 and 31. Paul says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, Paul, he's going to do this about three times a night. He has just made an incredibly important point. Okay, So we're going to stop and make sure we understand what he just said. There are two reasons that anybody in this world ever gets saved. Okay, Two reasons. And they are not contradictory. The first one... We have learned over and over and over again in chapter 9, and that is you are chosen by God. We learned that in chapter 8, we learned it in chapter 9, we saw it in Genesis, we saw it in Revelation. It's all throughout the Bible, we, we've covered that extensively. That is reason number one. But being chosen is not enough, okay? Being chosen is not enough. Just being chosen by God does not make you acceptable in His sight. There is something else that you have to have. And Paul tells us what that is in verse 30. He says, the Gentiles have attained it. What, have they ha what, if, what is it they have attained? They have attained a righteousness that is by faith. So these are the two things that any person needs in order to be saved. First of all, they have to be chosen by God, but they also have to attain the righteousness of, of God. You see, the fact is, we may be chosen before the foundation of the world, but you are born into this world a sinner. Okay? You are born into this world a sinner. As, as a sinner, you are not acceptable before God. We have to attain this righteousness. So God's choosing is not the end of the matter. It's not the end of the story. Even people chosen before the foundation of the world have to be made acceptable before God. We must attain righteousness. Now, how do we do that? That's the question. Now listen to me. I'm going to take a short detour here tonight, and then I'll come back. There's not a person in this room that should not be able to answer that question. Okay? If you're here tonight, it is imperative that you know how to answer that question. Not everybody is going to come up on the stage and teach. Not everybody's going to get up on a Sunday morning and preach and have to stand before uh, all these people. That's fine. Nobody's asking you to. But you need to be able to share the answer to that question sitting on a, uh, on a, on a bench in the park with a coworker. You need to be able to answer that question sitting across a lunch table uh, from a, a friend at school. 
You need to be able to answer that question sitting on a couch with your child in your home. There's not a person here that should not be able to answer that question. That is one of the most important questions anybody in this world ever needs to be able to answer. How do we attain the righteousness that we need? Now, most people, when you talk to them about that, if I, if I just pulled one of y'all up here right now, let me see. I mean, right now, panic is just going, coursing through your veins. He's going to really do it. He's going to really... How do I, you know, how do you take your Bible and show someone how to attain the righteousness they need? Now, a lot of you may have the Romans road. You know, Romans 3.23, Y'all may have those marked out in your Bible. I know Pastor Henry's really good at that. And if you, if you want him to help you mark out that Romans road, I'm sure he would be able to do that for you right now. But I want to make it extremely easy for you tonight. If, I want you to imagine for a moment a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, knocks on the door. And for some reason, you know, you normally you just run and hide. But this time you think, boy, <laughs> I'm going to talk to this guy. And you just feel compelled to talk to this guy. But then the panic sets in. Well, what do I say? What do I, what do, I do? I don't know what to do. What if he... Brings up stuff. So you, you go up to him and you say, look, man, I'll give you five minutes if you give me five minutes. By the way, 99 times out of 100, they will not take you up on that. They do not want to hear anything you got to say. So they'll just turn around and leave. But just say that. You, you give me five, you, I'll give you five minutes to share what you want to share. Now you give me five minutes. What do you share? What do you say? What do you do? Listen, I'm going to give you one place in your Bible to go. And that is Romans chapter 3, 19 to 26. You write that down. In fact, this is so good, you don't even have to say anything. You can literally open it and hand it to them and say, would you read that? You don't even have to say anything. Just let them read it. Romans 3, 19 to 26, Martin Luther said, is the center point of the entire Bible. Leon Morris, who's a Bible commentator, said it's quite possibly the most important paragraph ever written down in the history of this planet. Can you imagine the most important paragraph ever written down? Romans 3, 19. If you can't remember anything else, mark that one spot in your Bible and just go to that and start to read or have them read it. You don't even have to say a lot. But I'm going to walk you through a few of the verses tonight and just familiarize you with it, okay? And, and give you a few talking points and just talk to you so you know what it's about. I'm going to start in verse 19. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The first thing this passage says is that we are all guilty. We are all personally accountable for our sin. Now, let me tell you why this is so great. Let me tell you, everybody feels guilt. Everybody. The banker feels guilt. The ditch digger feels guilt. The rich man feels it. The poor man feels it. Everybody has guilt. So the first thing this does is it brings us all to the exact same spot. You don't have to worry. The Jehovah's Witness feels guilty. The Mormon feels guilty. The atheist feels guilty. They all feel the same guilt that we get. It is a universal experience. We all know we've done things we shouldn't have done. And by the way, we all know that we haven't done things that we should have done, which is its own kind of guilt. And so we all get these bad feelings from this, and we call these feelings guilt. Now, the question is, how do people deal with guilt? Well, if you're like me, everybody wants to get rid of it, right? Nobody. That is a terrible feeling to feel guilty. 
So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to try to get rid of it. Okay, we, we try to assuage those feelings. And there's a lot of ways to do it. Some people self-medicate. Some people throw themselves into their work and just stay busy. Some people, people do it through frivolity, through their hobbies and their passions. Some people spend uh, untold hours and dollars in counseling. But there is one method, one method that is the oldest method in the world to get rid of your guilt. Anybody know what it is? It's religion. It's religion. You see, religion... It's probably the most deceptive way to do it because it, re it comes really close to the truth. You see, religion acknowledges that we all got a problem. It, it recognizes that we're accountable to God. The problem with religion is that it gets the solution all wrong. You see, religion understands that you're in the doghouse. You're not in, a, you're not in right standing with God. And so religion says, hey, if you want to be made right with God, you want to get back in right standing with God, this is what you got to do. And it's got a whole list. You got to, you got to obey these rules. You got to give this money. You got to say this mass. You got to do this penance. You got to do, 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 do. You got to work, 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 work. In other words, what religion does, it says, hey, you can create your own righteousness. Let me tell you, Paul shoots that down in verse 20. The very next verse, Paul says this, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified or made right in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the way, that Jehovah's Witness guy comes and he knocks on the doors and he fills out his card and he takes it back and he turns it in. That's what he's doing. He's filling out, he's doing his works. He's earning his way. And that says that, that'll never work. All the law does is just tell you how bad of a failure you are in keeping it. That's all it does. More rules just means more guilt. Because you fail more. See, that's the bad news for us. And by the way, it's the bad news for all of us. We're all guilty before God. We all need a righteousness that we don't have. And we have absolutely no way of creating it on our own. By the way, that is the definition of hopelessness. We are hopeless. Which brings us, of course, to the good news. Verses 21 to 23. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God, the righteousness that you need, apart from the law, is revealed. The righteousness that, righteousness that you need, apart from that hopeless working, 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 that's never going to get you anywhere, that righteousness is now revealed. God has shown us how to get it. Verse 22 to 23. The righteousness of God, and here it is, through faith, in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Folks, that's the gospel. You don't even have to say anything. Just ask them, to, would you read this? Would you read this? Let the word, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Paul says, what, what wonderful news is this? There is a God... Sent, God supplied, God-given righteousness that you can't earn on your own. It's not obtained by doing works. It's not obtained by being a good person. It's not attained through obedience or any of those things. It's one way and one way only through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Every single person in here should be able to tell another person what I just said. You don't have to use my words. 
But you've got to be able to explain that. There is no excuse for it. No excuse. Listen, I just read yesterday. Okay? This, is, this literally was just yesterday. They just did a survey. They surveyed 3,500 people who said they were born-again Christians. Born-again Christians. 60% of them that were under 40 years old said that Jesus Christ is not the only way to heaven. 60% of millennials, 18 to 39, 60% who said they're born again said, well, Jesus is not the only way. Muhammad can get you there. Buddha can get you there. After all, it's, it, what's really important is that you have faith in something. What's really important is that, you, that you're sincere. Those are churchgoers. Okay? We have got to be able to share the, the truth. By the way, and I'm going to throw this one in for free. If you came to me and said you were slipping in your shower, and you were wondering, okay, where did this come from? If you said, I've been slipping in my shower, I'd say, well, you know, won't you go buy a handle? Okay? Now, how foolish would it be if you took that handle and you held it in your hand and you got in the shower and started washing? Okay? Does that handle do you any good? No, the handle has to be attached to something. Listen, your faith has to be attached to Jesus Christ. If your faith is attached to Buddha, if it's attached to Muhammad, if it's attached to aliens, if it's attached to anything other than Jesus Christ, it is absolutely useless. It is the object of your faith that makes salvation viable and non, or non-viable. And Jesus Christ is the only viable object that you can believe in in order to be saved. But there are people all over this country who don't believe that. And we have to... It's not enough anymore, folks. I'm sorry. It's not enough. They're not here for whatever reason on Wednesday nights. They may not, I don't, they're not hearing it. They need to hear it every day. They need to hear it at work from you and at school from you. They need to hear it. And, it, and it's all of our responsibility to share that message. Now, let's come back to tonight's passage. I want to see why... Gentiles are attaining this faith, uh, which comes by uh, this righteousness, which comes by faith, but the Jews are not. Let's read verses 30 and 31 again. Paul says, What shall we say? The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Then he, verse 32, he says, Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but they pursued it as if it were, excuse me, based on works. And then the last verse of, of Romans 9, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here you got these Gentiles. By the way, some of these never even heard of the law of Moses. Didn't even know there is such thing. And yet they're hearing this gospel and they're believing it. So you don't even need the law to, to come to Christ. That's how great Christ is. Okay? But Israel has completely missed it. They completely missed it. Because they did not pursue it by faith. They, they stumbled and fell when the, when the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached. They completely stumbled and fell. They could not come to the point where they understood that it's just about Faith. They absolutely missed the entire point of the law. Now, Paul has just made another, another very important point. Okay? 
I just said, as Christians, we have to carry this message. And I want you to listen to me really close. I've got two more things to say that are really important before we get done with Romans 9. This is the first one. It is absolutely imperative that you and I carry the message of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. That is their only hope. That's their only hope. But it is especially, especially important that we carry that message to our children. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I want to show you an example of something that happened in the Bible. Paul writes a letter to Timothy, and he writes this, 1 Timothy 1.5. He says this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So Timothy, his dad was a Gentile. His dad was a Greek. His mom was a, a, a Jewish lady, and his grandmother, her mother, was a Jewish lady as well, Eunice and, and Lois, okay? And they raised Timothy. Now, later on, Paul writes another letter, letter to Timothy, and I want you to watch what he says. He says, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, of course, which is his mother and his grandmother. They're the ones that taught him. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's the Old Testament. He says, how from childhood you have known the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. Okay? Now, I want you to notice how Paul connects the Old Testament scriptures, which were taught to Timothy by his mother, by his grandmother, and he says those scriptures are able to make you wise to a salvation that's coming by faith, or they're able to prepare you to receive a salvation by faith. Okay? Now, here's the thing. At the same time Timothy is being taught by his mother and his grandfather, grandmother, hundreds of thousands probably of other children are also being taught by their parents and grandparents. But Timothy one day is, he meets Paul and he hears this gospel and he believes. But the vast majority of the other children in the nation of Israel stumble. Now, why did Timothy believe when he heard the gospel? Because his mother and his grandmother had taught the scriptures to him correctly. You see, they looked in the Old Testament and they saw that the just shall live by faith. They, they looked in the Old Testament and they, they understood it's not about, you're never going to be made right by keeping laws. You're always going to fail. And the blood of bulls and goats can only cover ten, uh, sin temporarily. That we've got to look to God to provide a better sacrifice, a better king, a better redeemer. And he's going to do that one day. So, so when Timothy, that one day, I don't know where he was, he hears the Apostle Paul preach, and he's like, oh, yeah, this is what my mom and grandma has been telling me about. This is the one. You see, their teaching had made him wise to understand that salvation had to be by Faith. So he didn't stumble. He saw Christ as the goal of the law. And he was believed, he believed and was saved. But this same thing was not happening in the greater part of Israel. Let me show you how I know that. We turn to chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about the Jewish people. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now look at chapter 3 for being 
ignorant of the righteousness of God. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They're ignorant. See, what was happening was two things were going on. Lois and Eunice are teaching Timothy. And they're saying, Timothy, you see all these rules? You can't never do them. You can never make it perfectly. You're going to have to look to God to provide the righteousness that you need. And in, in all these other households, these parents or grandmothers, they're looking at the Scripture and they're saying, you see these rules? You better do them. You better do this if you want to be made right with God. You see the difference? One is teaching you can't do it. That God is too righteous. He's too holy. We can never measure up. And the others are saying you better measure up. You want to be made right with God, you better obey these laws. Now here's my question. What are you teaching your children? How are you teaching the Scriptures to your children? Because by the way, we have a Bible. And that Bible has stories in it. And that Bible has thou shalts and thou shalt nots. What are you teaching your children? Are your children knowledgeable about the righteousness of God or are they ignorant? Do the stories of the Bible point them to the need for, the sa for a Savior or are the stories of the Bible bunch of, a bunch of morality plays? Do our children, are they getting the impression, not only in our children's program and in our churches, but in your home? Are they getting the impression that their standing with God is based on their good behavior? Or they understand that God justifies the ungodly? Are you preparing them to receive a salvation that's by faith? Are we making them wise so that when they hear the gospel, they can understand, oh, that's what my mom and dad's always been talking about. This is the Savior that I need. See, we can make the exact same mistake if we're not careful. We want our kids to understand that Christ is not only the goal of the Old Testament law, that in all those Bible stories, in all those thou shalts and thou shalt nots, it's that Christ is the goal. It's about relationship. It's impar That's on us, right? That's on us. Alright, one more thing. I got about 10 minutes. Tonight we come to that the end of Romans 9, okay? And let me tell you, I just think it's been awesome <laughs> from my point of view. It may have been terrible to your point of view, but it was awesome. Listen, I love this stuff. Absolutely love it. I could do it every single day. But here's the thing, if we're not applying it to our lives, it's pointless. I I'm sorry. I love it, I love talking about it, I love teaching it, but if you're not applying Romans 9 and Romans 8 and Romans 7, and if you're not applying it to your life, we might as well just, it's, it's absolutely pointless. It's making no difference whatsoever. So what I want to make sure we're going to do before we leave here is that we understand that there is an application for our lives of Romans 9. And here's what it is. Romans 9 teaches us that the sovereignty of God, um, that, that God is sovereign in the fact that He chooses who is saved. He chooses the vessels of mercy. That's very clear in that chapter. Now, there is no person who has ever lived on earth who believes that more than Paul. 
There's no person on earth who ever taught that more than Paul. But let me tell you this, there is also no man that ever worked harder and prayed harder and, 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 and preached more and suffered more in order to see people get saved. You, you understand that? He's sitting here preaching the sovereignty of God and then he goes out there and he works harder and preaches more and suffers more and prays more than any other man has probably ever, ever done. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of who? The elect, the chosen. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul goes into a town. And he believes in his heart, God, there are certain people in this town that God has chosen. Let me tell you, it don't, it don't affect him at all. He still preaches and, and prays and works and suffers. He does whatever he has to do. Because he doesn't know. He has no idea. He doesn't care. He's going to do everything exactly the same. Now, we see this tonight in chapter 10, verse 1. Okay, Paul says this. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul says, I am praying to God. I'm asking God that He would save them. I have two questions for you tonight. Number one, are you praying for anyone to be saved? I want to see your hand. Is there anybody, you got family members, people close to you that you're praying to be saved? Okay, put your hand down. And here's my question. Do you believe He can do it? Do you really believe He can do it? Let me explain what I mean by that. I think all of us here understand that no one can come to God without His help, right? We all, regardless of where you fall on the, of, of how much, you know, God choosing or us choosing God, regardless of all that, everyone understands completely that you have to have God's help. Romans 3, 10 to 11, there's none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. There's none who seeks after God. They're not looking for God. They're out there building gods of, of, their, in the, of their own image, but they're not looking for the true one true God. They don't care. You have to have God's help. If you want to be saved, if you want to reach salvation, you've got to have God's help in some way. So that leaves us with two choices. Okay? Only two. Choice number one is this, that God will only go so far. He will draw a person. He will convict a person. He will woo a person, if you will. But in the end, God will never overcome their will. God will, the, the ultimate choice lies with the individual. That's option number one, okay? So it would be something like this. For example, this person might say, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So in a, in a way, God gives some grace. Everybody with me? He, he, he opens your eyes to a point. He convicts you. He draws you. He woos you to one point, and then he stops. And he says, okay, that's all I can do. It's up to you, man. Make the choice. That's your first option. Everybody with me? The second option is this. God drives up to your house in a limo. He knocks down the door. He goes inside. He washes you. He dresses you in a white robe. He picks you up. He puts you in the limo. He drives you to the venue. He picks you up, carries you in, and seats you at the table beside His Son. That's one way to put it, isn't it? 
In other words, the second option is that God does it all. This person would quote Romans 9.16. So then, it depends not on human will or human effort. Depends on God. In other words, if God decides you're going to be saved, He does the whole nine yards. Everybody with me? John MacArthur put it this way. Two different choices you have to make. Does God choose sinners to be saved and then provide for their salvation? Or does God provide the way of salvation that sinners must choose for themselves? Now listen, we all, di different people fall on different avenues of this, Okay. And that's fine. You, but you, one of those, uh, you got to believe one of those. Everybody with me? Those are, those are your two choices that you have. Now, here's the thing. However you choose to believe will have huge implications for your prayer life. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm just saying, however you choose to believe, whichever one of those has huge implications for your prayer life. Here's why. Because if you believe that God has the right and the power to show mercy to whomever He wills, then you can pray in faith that God will do that. You can actually believe God will do it. Everybody with me? Now listen to me closely. But if you believe God doesn't have that right, and God doesn't have that power, then in effect, you can never pray for God to save anybody. You can't ask Him to save anybody. You, you cannot say, God, take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. You can't do that. You can't say, God, grant them repentance and a knowledge of the truth. You can't say, God, open their hearts like you did for Lydia on that riverbank in Acts chapter 16 and grant them or so that they can believe the gospel. You can't say any of those things. Why? Because all of those prayers give God a right that you have reserved for the individual. You, 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 God just can't do those things because you believe that, God, that man has the ultimate determination of his own destiny. Everybody with me? What I'm trying to say here? So, here's the thing. If, some, if you really believe that God can only go so far and that at the end of the day it's all up to the man, if that's what you really believe, then how do you pray? How do you pray? There's a guy that's out there to help you. His name's Dick Eastman. He wrote a book called The Hour That Changes the World. It's a personal, a practical plan for personal prayer. And, and Dick Eastman doesn't believe that God has mercy on whomever he wills. He doesn't believe that. He believes that at the end of the day, it all comes down that God will only go so far, but it all comes down to the person. Okay? That's what he believes. So he's got a section in his book on how to pray for the lost, all right? So I'm going to give you a couple. This is how he says you have to pray for the lost. Now, I will give him credit that he literally is, is he prays the way he believes. He said this, what you need to do is you need to ask God to cause that person to begin questioning whom they can really trust in life. Just ask God to, to, to put, you know, just, just to cause them somehow to begin to question who they can trust in life. He says this, Pray that God will plant in the hearts of these people an inner unrest together with a longing to know the truth. Now, I'm just going to be honest with y'all, because I always am. I got lots and lots and lots of problems with that. Okay? First of all, go back to the first one. 
I would ask him, why is it okay for God to call someone to ask a question they would never ask on their own, but it's not okay for God to cause that person to give an answer that they would never give on their own? I don't understand that. And by the way, the second one, he says, ask them God to put in a longing. Well, okay, do you want God to put in a weak longing? Or do you want God to put in a strong longing? Because if he puts in a weak longing, probably ain't nothing going to happen. And if he puts in a really strong longing, then probably... So what are you asking God to do? You want him to do weak? You want him to do... I mean, that makes no sense to me. By the way, those are some of the most pitiful, pitiful prayers that I've ever heard. But let me tell you why it bothers, what bothers me the worst. I, I, I've read the book. You go read that book. He never, ever asked God to save that person because he doesn't believe God can. He never says, ask God to save them. Never. Because he doesn't believe God can. Doesn't believe God has the power to do that. God has the right to do that. Let me tell you, all all I can tell you is the Apostle Paul was standing here, he would excoriate that man. Because I can tell you what Apostle Paul believes. So then... It depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. And see, the Apostle Paul, when he prays, he believes God can save, so he believes he prays that God would save. And I'm just standing here telling you, that's exactly how we should pray. Not those pitiful little prayers with a God tied behind His back. Listen, I'm just here to tell you tonight, when I pray for my children, and I pray for my grandchildren, and I pray for my great-grandchildren, I'm not asking God to put a longing in their heart. I'm not asking God to put unrest in their heart. I'm saying, God, take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I'm saying, God, circumcise their heart so they can love you. I'm saying, God, put your spirit within them and make them walk in your statutes. God, open their heart like you did for Lydia so they'll believe in you. Save them, God, because I know you can. That's how we should be praying. Father, my heart's desire and prayer to you is that you would save them. You do it. Sovereign God of the universe. That's my God. Because I believe that He can. See, this is why Romans 9 has such practical applications for you and I. Who is the God that you're praying for to? What can He do? These things matter. They matter because faith matters. James 1.6 says, When you pray, don't ask in doubt. Because when you doubt, you're like a wave of the wind, pushed, a wave, wave pushed around by the wind. You're not going to ever get anything. See, if I'm going to pray in faith, especially for someone to be saved, then I have to know the God that I'm praying to in order to pray in faith. And I know every one of us here want to do that. Listen, we're going to close tonight with a time at the altar. There is no way that I could say what I just said and not invite you down to pray for someone in your life that needs to be saved. I know we've all got loved ones. Every single one of us should have somebody in our family, somebody in our, in our inner circle, somebody that's close to us that our hearts desire is for God to pray, is to save them. So what I'm going to invite you to do tonight, the same thing that I'm going to do, is to get down at this altar and lay your heart out before a sovereign God. Not praying that God will just bring somebody into their life or God will put some kind of longing.
but pray that He would do what He can do, and that is to save to the uttermost. His arm is not shortened, the Old Testament says. He doesn't have one arm or two arms tied behind His back. God can do... Our God is in the heaven, Psalm says. He does whatever He wants. My prayer to you, God. My prayer to you. My heart's desire. Save my brother. Save my sister. Save my child, my mom, my my friend. God, you do that. Because I believe you can. Thank you again for joining us today at River of Life. If this teaching has touched you today, or if you need somebody to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email to info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Visit rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.